all for being here tonight. We have had a really good time. I was just telling a couple of the ladies I met, we came up with about a third of our church to do the Creation Museum and the Ark. So we've had a full two days, uh, Wednesday and Thursday, but we're really excited to be with you all tonight and talk about a topic that's really dear to our hearts. Um, I'm going to be piggybacking on a lot of what my husband said in his um, in his session, the goal he was talking about the goal of family discipleship, and tonight we're talking about education. So we're going to apply a lot of what he said to education, um, to homeschool, Christian school, whatever you know, public school, whatever your situation is. I don't know all the demographics here. I'm assuming um, we probably. I think Scott said there are a lot of homeschoolers in this church, so you know we'll make some specific applications there, but not completely just a homeschool talk at all. So don't think that if your kids are in Christian school, um, I know there's what answers Academy, is that what it is down the, down the road. So we'll be applying this to all those kinds of situations. Just again, with, um, like Scott said, intentionality, um, thinking through what we do in education with real intentionality, um, so that we're doing things biblically, because I know that that's what we all want to be doing. So we'll go through some biblical principles, and then we'll um, we'll look at some practical steps. So starting off tonight, um, imagine with me for a minute that your child, who is now taller than you, as two of my children are, um, is in cap and gown, and pomp and circumstance starts to play, and they're marching down that aisle, and it's commencement. Okay, their graduation ceremony, and they have finished their education. So tonight what we want to talk about is what does, what does that mean? What does it mean to finish your education? What is the goal of education? What are we aiming for with our education? And really think through that really specifically, biblically, and um, looking at what a lot of secular and even Christian curricula are telling us that the goal of education should be, and then kind of evaluating that with a biblical lens. So, start off, let's talk for just a second about what a few um, educational philosophers have said that the goal of education is um, throughout the centuries. So, Aristotle, for instance, um, believed that the goal of education was moral character or virtue because he thought that the happy man was the virtuous man. And so, um, happiness could come through education by building your moral character and making you a virtuous person. Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages took Aristotle's ideas and he tried to reconcile them with faith. So in the Middle Ages, we see education's goals being very moralistic, a lot of memorizing of lists of rules and things like that. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a 1700s Enlightenment thinker, and he's had a huge impact on education even today. Um, and he believed that the goal of education was for a man to be governed by his own reason. He thought that the reason was, should triumph over everything and that we don't need anything apart from our own human reason. And then in the late 1800s and early 1900s, no surprise here, we see a big post-Darwin shift when it comes to educational goals and educational methods a big push toward human development theories and um, a big push toward psychology as a foundation for education. 
So in the early 20th century, the father of modern education, John Dewey, said that individual life experience is both the means and the goal of education. And a little bit later, in the mid-20th century, American psychologist Abraham Maslow published his Hierarchy of Needs. And if you've had any kind of teacher training, especially in a secular school, but even Christian schools teach this, you're probably familiar with that pyramid, the Hierarchy of Needs. Um, And it goes like this. Education should first meet children's psychological needs and safety needs. That's at the bottom. And then their belonging needs. They need to be able to fit in, and they need to be able to see themselves. And then their love needs. They need to be able to love themselves. And then they need their self-esteem needs met. So they need to get awards, and they need to have a feeling of accomplishment. And then finally, at the top of that pyramid, the pinnacle, the ultimate goal of education according to Maslow, and what all teachers should be teaching toward, is self-actualization, reaching the child's own inner potential. And then in the late 20th century, educational philosopher Paulo Freire, who's Brazilian, said that the goal of education was to liberate human potential by overthrowing power structures and oppressors. And of course, we see that now especially in the last three to five years, really infiltrating um, the public school system. We see it infiltrating textbooks and even Christian school curriculum. Um, Those ideas of self-expression, self-authentication, and liberation over oppressors. So we can trace how this has um, trended through the years. But it's been a lot about self, hasn't it? It's been a lot about man's own reason, man's own self-expression, man's own self-actualization, and man's liberation. It's been a lot about self. And I even hear Christian educators, excuse me, (coughs) Christian educators, Christian curricula all the time saying things like we need to help each other, help Love. We need to help our children love themselves. Sorry, I shouldn't get away from the microphone. We need to help um, children love themselves. We need to help children have um, self-expression and have authentic identity. And they couch it in Christian-sounding terms like humility and brotherly love. But it's still all about the self. And what about us in this room? What do we typically think of as goals for our children's education. I don't think when I go to like-minded churches like this and um, talk about education, you know, most people have thought through the idea that education is not about man's reason or man's self-authentication or, you know, those kinds of things. But we have these ideas that, that education is about learning what we need to learn, getting information that we need to know in order to get, you know, good grades and to get into college. You know, a lot of people, well, you know, what is your goal for your child? Well, I want them to be able to get into such and such college or that they need to be able to get this certain kind of a job. So they need to learn what they need to learn to get into this kind of a job. They need to, uh, you know, it's these these very sort of pragmatic goals of we just need to get through these checklists. And if we do these things, 
then we will have accomplished education. And if you're a homeschooling parent in this room, as I am, maybe you feel burdened by that um, because that's on you then. If that's the goal of education, for your kids to know a certain amount of things and get through a certain list of things um, by 12th grade, then that's on you to make that happen. And that can be incredibly intimidating, can it? I don't know the demographics in this room because I haven't met all of you yet, but um, if you've chosen a Christian path for your children's education, maybe one thing that you think about in terms of educational goals is that you want your child to graduate with a biblical worldview. They are able to um, know certain information and be able to filter that through a biblical lens. Um, And that is definitely a noble goal, and that is one of the things we want for our children. But here's the problem, and this relates to what my husband was saying a few minutes ago. Our children are not just thinking machines. As one Christian philosopher puts it, they're not brains on a stick. Um, We can't just teach our children's minds and then expect them to go out and live Christian lives. We're missing some components. We're missing the heart, as he talked about. So whether we're teaching them information so that they could get good grades and go to a certain college and get a job, or whether we're teaching them information so that they can have a biblical worldview, we're missing that component of the heart. We're missing some, we're missing some biblical aspects there in order for them to actually be able to put into practice what they have learned and to be able to live a Christian life. Like he was saying in there, we have to do more than just know. We also have to be able to obey and love and ultimately to worship. And so that comes into play in education and what we're teaching. It's not just about learning information and you know going through the tests and getting good grades on the test and passing the class and moving on to the next grade. The word cur- curriculum literally means a course to be run. So that's why we call classes, like in college, we call it, we're taking a, um, a course. But if this isn't a course that we run on a track around and around, like fourth grade, check, fifth grade, check, on and on and on. This is more like distance running. It's a marathon. And we're setting our sights somewhere off in the distance. So we're not running on a track like this. We're running long distance. So what does the Bible say then about where we're supposed to be looking? What is our end goal? Because the Bible, as we all know, is where we're supposed to turn for these answers. And the Bible has answers to these things, even though it doesn't say, you know, thou shalt teach math using this curriculum, which would be so nice, right? But no. But the Bible gives us clear principles about these things. We don't try to match the Bible to psychology. We don't try to match the Bible to educational philosophies any more than we try to match the Bible to supposedly settled science, right? We look to the Bible first, and everything else has to fit in under the biblical principles because the Bible is the source of our faith and practice. So professional educators don't have the corner on educational philosophy. The Bible does. In fact, the whole category of professional educator was invented in the 20th century by educational reformers like John Dewey, who was a Marxist Darwinist, and 
he wanted to get children away from their parents and away from the churches, which those two categories were the main people who had been teaching children. Because, of course, there were teachers and tutors prior to, you know, the educational reforms of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. But you became a teacher or tutor by knowing your stuff. You had a mastery of the ancient languages. You knew your theology. You knew your philosophy. You knew the liberal arts. But when Dewey came along and his friends, his group, um, in the early 20th century, teachers' colleges starting, started popping up. And in teachers' colleges, all of a sudden we were taught brain science, evolutionary brain science, and uh, child development psychology. And with, teachers were taught to create lesson plans that match certain stages of child development according to the educational psychologists. So parents and churches were told, sorry, you can't teach children anymore because you don't know the brain science. You don't, you, you know, you're not a professional because you don't know child development psychology. And so now, you know, a hundred years later, we've kind of a lot of times bought into this idea that we're not professional teachers. We don't know enough. And it gives a lot of parents insecurity about teaching their own children. They don't have confidence because they think that, you know, they haven't been certified and they don't know all the things that they need to know in order to be able to pass on knowledge to their children. But this is a very, very new idea that teachers need some kind of scientific, you know, quote unquote, for the, for the recording, I'm doing air quotes, um, you know, scientific certification in, you know, how a child's brain works and um, de developmental psychology in order to be able to teach our children. That's just simply not true. And the government and the child development psychologists do not get to tell us the goal of education and how to teach our children. Only the Bible does. So let's go to scripture and let's glean some wisdom on this issue. One thing I say in almost all my talks is that behind every educational practice or methodology, if you will, is an educational philosophy. And behind every educational philosophy is a theology about the nature of the student, the role of the teacher, and the goal of education, which is our topic today. But let's quickly look at those other two categories, the nature of the student in Scripture and the biblical role of the teacher. According to Scripture, what is the nature of the student? Who is the student? We know this, and yet sometimes I think we don't um, apply these things to our educational choices. We just don't connect the dots. How does the Bible describe people? Some of you feel free to jump in. How, do, how does the Bible describe mankind? What are we? That's right. That was the first one on my list. Yes, created in God's own image. What else? Sinners, I heard. Yes, we are fallen sinners. What else? We are members of one human race. We are the, the image of God in us, just to further develop this idea, is fallen but not lost, right? We have eternal souls. And if we're Christians, we're living in light of eternity. If a person has turned to Christ in faith and repentance, then he's a new creation, a child of God, a temple of the Holy Spirit, 
a member of the body of Christ, right? God describes us in Scripture in all these ways. (coughs) This means that children are not blank slates. Children are not cogs in a machine. They do not belong to the state. They belong to God, their creator. Their dignity and worth is not measured by the color of their skin or their social standing or their sex, unlike what a lot of people are trying to tell us today. And yet, so many goals of education are predicated on these faulty ideas about what a person is or who a person is instead of on the biblical idea of mankind. And what, according to scripture, is the role of the teacher? This is maybe a little bit less obvious, but we have some really good principles from the Apostle Paul on the role of the teacher. He says, imitate me as I imitate who? God, God, Christ specifically, yes. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. He tells Titus that older men and women are to teach by their example. So a teacher must be an exemplar. A teacher needs to walk worthy of the calling to which he has been called. A teacher needs to be imitating Christ and walking uh, with Christ and reading their Bible and knowing the word. They need to look like Christ in their walk and in their talk. And if you as the parent are your child's teacher, that also can be intimidating, can't it? Because our children, if they are home for us, home with us all day, they see us sin. It's just inevitable. They see all of our sins. Sometimes we're tempted to think, oh, if I just sent them to school and they had a lovely, godly Christian teacher, you know, these sweet Christian school teachers, they would not see all my sin and they would just have this sweet teacher. But here's my encouragement for you, and it's my encouragement to myself as well. Homeschool parents, you have the unique opportunity to show your children a walk that includes daily repentance. Your child is going to sin just like you sin. But what you're modeling for them then is repentance, humility, mercy, grace. That is Christ-like. And that's the reality of the Christian life because we all will sin. And If they don't see our sin and see us repenting, they don't learn how to handle that properly in a Christ-like manner. So we have the opportunity to show them a life of repentant humility in in our Christ-like walk. And then what does this mean on a very basic level? If the role of the teacher is to be a Christ-like exemplar, then the teacher needs to be a Christian. Psalms reminds us that unbelievers are not good people. They're not nice people. You know, your neighbor might be a really kind person, but if your neighbor doesn't believe, then your neighbor is in open rebellion against God. They are living as if there is no God. When they mow their lawn on Sunday morning and wave to you as you go in your large 15-passenger van with all your kids, and they wave to you on your way to church. They are saying, I'm living my way. I am not living God's way. I get to do what I want. So even if they don't openly profane God, an unbeliever is shaking their fist at God. They hate God. They're in rebellion against God. And so 
If Jesus gives us this wisdom concerning teachers in the Gospel of Luke, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher, Luke 6.40. If a disciple will be like his teacher, who do we want teaching our children? Not an unbeliever. We want our children to be taught by people who are walking with Christ. Education is discipleship. <clears throat> so my husband talked about goals of discipleship, family discipleship. Education is part of discipleship. It is that Ephesians model of training up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so if the student is a fallen image bearer, and if the teacher's job is to lead by Christ-like example, what then is the goal of education according to Scripture? Well, we said a minute ago that curriculum is a course to be run. That's what that word means. Running a marathon, going the distance, looking off into the distance at an end goal somewhere far ahead. Education is then a lifelong marathon. It doesn't end at age 18 or age 22. Education doesn't end with graduation. Education is lifelong. <clears throat> what, is the, what does the Apostle say? What does the Apostle Paul say? What are we to be running toward? Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, straining forward, that's the run. There's your marathon. You're straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our goal in education is to know him, Jesus Christ, and to imitate him and to walk in his ways. Our goal in education is to become like Christ. So when we think about knowledge, what does that word actually mean? My husband touched on this a little bit. Does it mean um, information accumulation, piling up data and facts, lists and charts and memorizing a bunch of facts? Well, that's not the biblical idea of knowledge, and we can think about it this way. Um, some Bible versions use the language, for instance, Adam knew his wife Eve, but that doesn't mean he had information stored up 
about her in his head. Okay, we all know what that means. Knowledge is an intimate word. It is a relationship word. It is a love word. And there's the love aspect that Scott was talking about. So education then is not information accumulation. It's not about self-love. Education is a growing love relationship with the things of God, the true and the good and the beautiful, because those things reflect God. True education reaches the heart, and the heart is the center of our inner being. It's that core place in which the mind and the will and the affections come together in unity. That's how the Bible describes the heart. So if the goal of education is to know Christ and to love him and to be like him, then we must ask ourselves, what is Christ like? Well, Philippians 2 tells us, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We're supposed to put on the mind of Christ, and that is humility. So education not only requires humility, because in order to learn something, you have to look at something other than yourself. And in Christian education, that focus should ultimately be on looking at God and the world God has made and God's character. But increasing humility is also a product and goal of true education, because the more we're educated, the more we realize how much we don't know. So when our child is 18 or 22 or whenever they finish their quote-unquote formal education, it should be with a sense of, I know so little. Not with a sense of being puffed up like, I know all the things, you know, but I, there's so much more to learn. I think Scott, not my Scott, but the Scott in your church wins the prize for calling me Dr. Annual. <laughs> more, he probably, I don't get that very often, which is, you know, totally fine. He called me, you know, Dr. Annual, Dr. Annual, and he was introducing me. What the biggest product of my doctorate is the overwhelming feeling of how little I know. Because you start digging into those books and you see all the footnotes and all the books you haven't read and all the information that's out there and all the things that have been written throughout the centuries and millennia. And you're like, I will never even have a grasp on this one little topic that you know I'm researching, let alone all the things there are to know. It's incredibly humbling. And education should be humbling like that. What else does scripture say? Luke tells us that Christ grew in wisdom. And my husband talked about this a little bit as well. In imitating Christ, we're supposed to grow in wisdom. What is wisdom? My husband likes to use the quote that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. And wisdom is knowing that you don't put a tomato in a fruit salad. Okay? Wisdom is knowing how to rightly act on your knowledge. It's the living it out part. So we're not just learning things so that we have, you know, giant heads and we have a head full of information, but we are learning things so that we can use that knowledge to live in the world as Christians, to make a difference, to be a witness. 
And then what kinds of things does the Bible tell us that we're supposed to put on? That's the other part of this puzzle. We have lists like this all throughout the epistles, right? From the Apostle Paul especially, and from Peter. Second Peter 1 tells us, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So education should further the goal of making us fruitful in the knowledge or the love of our Lord Jesus Christ and the things of the Lord. We could say it this way. Education should help us to rightly order our affections or our loves so that we love the right things, so that we love the truth. We don't just know the truth. We don't just intellectually assent to what is true, but we love the truth. All truth proceeds from God, so that we love goodness. We love pure things. All goodness is a reflection of God's character, and so that we learn to love beauty, because God is beauty, and God sets the standard for absolute beauty. And then finally, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10 that whatever we do, we should do it for the glory of God. So education should increase our worship of God as we learn more about him and we learn more about the world he has made. And we are moved then to glorify him, worship him, to magnify him. So here's my question this evening. If the chief end of man, we know the catechism question, right? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So if the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then what is the chief end of education? Why would it be any different than the chief end of man? We are, education is part of our sanctification. It is a discipleship in Christ's likeness. So that all of man's pursuits, education and otherwise, should be to glorify God. So here's my new modified catechism question for you in relation to education. What is the chief end of education? The chief end of education is to glorify God and enjoy him forever by being conformed into the image of his son and by growing in love for him and the world he has made. We do not need to self-actualize. We do not need to have individual life experiences. We do not need to liberate ourselves. No, we need to look to God, not self. We do not need any help loving ourselves. We are born loving ourselves way too much. Anybody that tells you that self-anything is the goal of education is not thinking biblically. The potential we want our children to reach is for them to learn to deny themselves and to take up their cross and to follow Christ. So we want them to be looking at Christ, not self. So then very quickly in these last few minutes, if the Bible gives us these clear principles about education as far as it is to glorify God and to worship him and to become more like Christ and to love him more, How do we put that into practice in the education of our children? First, 
have a set of, of biblical goals for your children or a family mission statement or vision statement, <clears throat> what could that look like? Well, quite a number of years ago now, I wrote down 10 goals that I have for my children. And I'll share these with you um, just to, you know, get your wheels turning. But, you know, your goals don't have to be exactly the same as my goals. Just make your goals, pull them from Scripture. So I tried to pull these from Scripture as much as I could because I want my children to follow Christ. Like, that's just all, I mean, ultimate goal. I want them to repent of their sins and have faith in Christ and live godly lives. So here are my 10, just again, to get your wheels turning. So I wrote down that I want them to know Christ as Savior and delight in him far above all else. I want them to have God's word hidden in their hearts. I want them to be humble servants, loving others more than self. I want them to have the habit and desire for daily time in God's word and be constantly praying. I want them to have the law of kindness on their tongues. I want them to think the way God thinks about sin. I want them to have increasing wonder. And by wonder, I mean that in both senses, both curiosity, like wonder about, and awe, as in wonderful. I want them to have increasing wonder about the world God has created and the unfolding story of that world. I want them to recognize, understand, and love truth, goodness, and beauty. I want them to use their God-given gifts wisely and capably. And finally, I want them to have Christ-like wisdom in their words and deeds. But one way to kind of narrow that down into one sentence is I want them to know Christ and be like him in thought, word, and deed. And if we keep that in the forefront of our minds, I think sometimes our educational practices will change because all of a sudden our goals are eternal instead of temporal. And it's less about finishing this year's checklist and more about immersing our children in the word. So then I took those goals and I created a mission statement for our family. And so I encourage you to do the same. You and your husband sit down and, and think, think about this and talk about this together and hang it up somewhere where you'll see it every day. And I turned ours into a little catechism-type question. Apparently, I like to do that. (laughs) But that way, we can say it out loud sometimes. So I say, what is our purpose today and every day? Our purpose is to glorify God by joyfully seeking wisdom and beauty and forming habits of Christlikeness through the knowledge and understanding of the best of this world and the next, through the imitation of God's character, and through the contemplation of worthy ideas. We do this with an attitude of humility and worship that we may bring our thoughts into harmony with God's thoughts about ourselves and the world and properly order our affections. Your vision statement doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be eloquent. I'm sure I could probably get out my editor's pen and reword that to make it more succinct. But just think about it. Just be intentional about it. And I promise it's going to go a long way in helping you make decisions because you have that in front of your eyes. So, Goals, vision statements, mission statements, big picture stuff. Second, make sure that worship is a core part of your school day. Reading scripture, singing hymns, praying, hiding God's word in our hearts. These things need to be part of the school day, whether at home or at a place you're choosing to send them. So if you homeschool, that could look like having a short time where you sit down, maybe 
15 or 20 minutes at some point in your school day and just sing a doxology for adoration and then confess sins to each other. Because if you wait long enough in your school day, you're all going to have things to confess. (laughs) And then give thanks to God. Thank him for his blessings. Thank him for what you're learning. And then um, read scripture together. Read a child's Bible or read a passage from your favorite translation of scripture. My favorite children's Bible is um, the Catherine Voss Story Bible. I like that one a lot because it's written so that younger and older children can learn well from it, and it really, really sticks to scripture, and the theology is good throughout. So, you know, read a good children's Bible or, um, you know, just a passage from scripture, and then, you know, memorize a verse or memorize like uh with my kids right now we're doing we just did psalm 1 and psalm 2 and now we are doing a portion of philippians and so i almost couldn't remember my kids remember though um so you know just memorize a short passage or a verse together every day just you know read it one or two times and eventually it will stick so you know use your mornings um, use your meal times, whether you homeschool or not. Use your meal times as a time to pray and refocus and recenter yourself. Use times in the car together while you're driving to pray as you, you know, pass certain businesses or certain, you know, schools or whatever, you know, whatever you pass on your daily drives and you're, you know, you have your places you go. Pray for people. Um, have things that you pray for in the car. Or do an audio Bible in the car or like the Jesus Storybook Bible has a really nice narration. We have it on CD. It's probably, you know, streaming these days, but the, the narration of that is really nice. Use family devotions, as my husband is, is talking about right now. Use family devotions as a time to recenter and talk about Christ and make sure that you know, we're sharing the gospel with our kids on a daily basis and praying together and singing together as a family. And then um, bedtime, of course, is another time where we can really point our children to Christ. And times of discipline as well. Um, One of my favorite uh, quotations is from a book called, oh rats, I didn't write down the title. It's by Ginger Hubbard, Don't Make Me Count to Three, that's it. And she says, we should be joyful and thankful every time that we are provided with an opportunity to point our children to their need for Jesus by training them in his word. If we could simply view all of their sinful behaviors as precious opportunities to teach them, we would be joyful and eager all the time rather than angry and frustrated. That's really convicting because we are so tempted to get angry and frustrated when our children just sin over and over and over. But if we view those times as times to point our children to Jesus, then those can be joyful and sweet times. Another thing to note here, we do not... We should not be overloading our children with so many subjects and so much homework that they don't have time to read the Bible. If, you know, if we're so concerned about, okay, you got to get your math assignment done, you got to get your science experiment done, and oh, it's the end of the day and you didn't have time to read your Bible because you had to get all your schoolwork done, then our priorities are skewed. So make sure that your children are prioritizing Bible reading over their other school subjects. Um, so even if you have to put that, you know, on their school checklist or whatever, let's make that a priority and a habit with our children. 
also in this category, a speaker I heard recently talked about children at the age of 12 having the first five books of the Bible memorized. And then that was standard practice, standard practice for Jewish children by the age of 12 to have the, the whole Torah memorized. And she talks about teens memorizing the entire New Testament plus Psalms and maybe Proverbs during their teen years. So talk about educational goals. Talk about a giant feeling of failure, right? But um, here's my point, though. Memorization is part of education. Okay, we're going to be choosing for our children to memorize something, or their teachers are going to be choosing for them to memorize something. We only have so much time to memorize. We only have so much capacity to memorize. Um, now, we can stretch that, of course, but still, we have to make choices. What are they going to memorize and what are they not? I believe very strongly our children should spend that memory space, by and large, primarily memorizing the word. That is what they're going to need for life. That is the peg that everything else hangs on. Everything else pales in comparison. Hide the word in your heart. That isn't just information. It's living, and it's going to grow in your child's heart, and it's going to actually change our children through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you're trying to decide between a list of something, facts, and God's Word, or hymns, which is another great thing to memorize, choose the one that's going to have living power from the Holy Spirit, and God's Word will not return void in their life. And then third and finally, Make sure that the books and materials your children learn, um, that they are not only true and not only morally pure and honorable, but also lovely. And my husband talked about this a little bit when he was talking about beauty. Philippians 4.8 tells us what we're to be thinking about, doesn't it? And Paul doesn't stop after the first phrase or the second phrase. Whatever things are true, think about these things. And he doesn't just stop after whatever things are true and honorable and pure. He doesn't stop. He continues, whatever is lovely, think about these things. True and ugly don't work together. They're not compatible with God's character. In order for something to be true, it also has to be lovely. Because God is truth and loveliness. You can't separate them. I have such a burden about this regarding... Christian curriculum, because I think we've made such great strides in recovering truth in the curriculum. And we have made, you know, great strides in obviously making sure that the books that we use are morally pure. But we haven't always, in many cases, made sure that our books are lovely. We haven't made sure that the writing is beautiful. We haven't made sure that the illustrations are beautiful and lovely. We sort of pre-chew things and dumb them down and then expect our kids to want to learn or want to read those books, but they don't because they're not lovely. And we don't want to expect our kids or condition our kids to like bad writing or, you know, bad illustrations. We want our kids to learn to love what is lovely because God is lovely. So, You know, in our society, loveliness is in the eye of the beholder, but it's really important to teach our children to recognize loveliness and beauty because God is actually the standard of absolute beauty. So we need to compare what is lovely to God's word and to God's creation. That's how we know something is lovely. 
God's written beauty and God's visual beauty that he has created, that is the standard for loveliness. And we compare all human creativity to God's creativity. So God sets the standards for for what is lovely and truly lovely things also point us away from ourselves. And we've touched on this already. They point us to the transcendent things of God. So if someone is telling you that the books you read should mirror you or should be a window to look at your neighbor or whatever, that that is not loveliness. That is self-gratification again. That's pointing back to the self. What our books should be doing, what lovely books actually do, is point us away from ourselves and give us a glimpse, a little glimpse into heavenly beauty, God's beauty. So, test everything, hold fast to that which is beneficial and good and excellent. And that includes the packaging, because it isn't really just packaging. The packaging carries a message. It shapes the message. We need to give our kids beautiful books and beautiful things not expensive. That is, you know, beautiful doesn't have to equal expensive wooden learning manipulatives that you see on Instagram. And your homeschool room doesn't have to look like Instagram mom's homeschool room. But order and not dumbed down materials, not ugly materials, but beautiful things and beautiful writing and beautiful books so that they can learn how to love what is lovely and love what is true, not just know what is true, but love it because then they will live it out and they will become worshipers and they will glorify God. So let's go back to that first scene. Our child is marching down the aisle in cap and gown, the commencement ceremony, right? That's what we call it. But what is a commencement? What does that word mean? To commence doesn't mean end, does it? To commence means to begin, When our children march down that aisle at commencement, they are truly beginning their actual education. Their education ends not with graduation, but with glorification. It's not all on us to learn this checklist of things by the time they get, you know, to 12th grade. It's on us to point them to Christ and to help them love what is lovely so that when they commence their education in life as they grow into adulthood, that they would know how to recognize truth and goodness and beauty and that they would be able to live that out in lives of worship and wisdom. And only then, at glorification, that is the end of the race. That's the end of education. Only then will they know Christ face to face and be truly like him. So that's where we need to keep our eyes. Not on mere information accumulation, not on self but on becoming like Christ through sanctification and discipleship for that ultimate day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and we will live with him forever. We are educating here for eternity, and that is our goal. So let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of our children. We thank you for the uh, blessing it is to be able to disciple them. Please help us to be Christ-like examples. Please help us to die to self. And please help us to point our children to you. Help each child and grandchild and 
niece and nephew or whatever the case may be represented in this room, please help these children to come to know you as Lord and Savior most of all and help them to learn your word and to hide it in their hearts and to love you and live for you throughout their lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.